welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line. We talk to all the master artisans and craftsmen from actors, directors, screenwriters, editors, costumers, production designers, uh, composers. We cover it all on Behind the Lens. And hope you enjoy it. As a matter of fact, I know some of you do. Others of you I know I've gotten some uh, social media response from that you're not too thrilled with some of our interviews. But c'est la vie. You cannot please everyone, uh, unfortunately. But we are back for another episode of Behind the Lens, the second one of year five. Um, in addition to being here on on Adrenaline Radio every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad in well over 130, 140 print and online publications. uh, Print, online, globally, and of course, on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But as I said, every Monday, right here on AdrenalineRadio.com. And, you know, if you ever miss any of our episodes, they are all archived on iTunes, on Stitcher, on BehindTheLensOnline.net. And Adrenaline Radio actually archives some, but because of the sheer volume of content uh, and the other shows that also get archived, I think Adrenaline only keeps, what, about three months? About three months' worth of shows. But, hey, I keep everything. So you can find everything on BehindTheLensOnline.net and on iTunes. Plus, we've got a lot of, of interviews, that uh, red carpet interviews, uh, that are up on our YouTube channel. So check it all out. Um, very, very excited again about today's show. Uh, we have a wonderful guest at the midpoint of the show, writer, director, cinematographer, producer, Jeff Fry. Jeff was with us in December, but we had such a small amount of time for him to talk about this amazing film that he's done uh, called Krieg, which is a World War II film um, it is just, it's a approximately 30 minutes long. It is an Academy qualifier, um, and it is spectacular. Uh, so I wanted to bring him back, especially since this weekend the film is screening at the Borrego Film Festival, and it was just announced the film will be at the Irvine Film Festival in March, and hopefully some others in between there. But I'm thrilled that we're going to have Jeff back to talk more about Krieg and the making of um, it truly is, it's a film that the thematics of it and the story of it is as pertinent today as it was back at the time of World War II. But before we get there, I got to talk about you heard me talk about it last week. I'm going to talk about it again today. The Upside, starring Kevin Hart, Brian Cranston, Nicole Kidman, number one movie at the box office this weekend. I am beyond excited. It is an amazing story. It is based on a true story. It is a remake of uh, the French film The Intouchables by Olivier Nakachi. Um, and it is the story of Philippe Pozo de Borgia and <clears throat> Abdul Salou, who was his caregiver. Philippe was injured in an accident and suffered a spinal cord injury and became a, a quadriplegic Abdel. And he was a very affluent man, French man. And uh, Abdel 
came from the other side of the track, shall we say, and became his caregiver. Uh, and they developed a lifelong friendship. As a matter of fact, they are li- they are still friends to this very day, although Abdel no longer works for Philippe. He now lives in Algeria with his wife and his children and has his own chicken farm. But the Untouchables told their story, and now director Neil Berger tells the story for the English-speaking audiences with the upside. Um, Kevin Hart plays Dell which is essentially Abdel's uh, character. Um, Brian Cranston plays Philippe, and in this version he is known as Philip. And Nicole Kidman is a partner and kind of sort of likes Brian Cranston's character. Um, it truly is. It's, it's an astounding story. As I talked about last week, it is a performance out of Kevin Hart that who knew he had it in him to bring this kind of sobering, dramatic gravitas and balancing it with inherent humor as opposed to over the top, you know, laugh out loud, funny, gut wrenching stand up comedy. Um, Truly, truly a film to be seen on the big screen. And I am so thrilled. Did not get to talk to director Neil Berger back when we did press at the end of October for the film. Uh, But Bless you, publicists, because you guys got me hooked up with him last week, and we got to talk about his vi- his vision for making The Upside, starting with, why do a remake of such a highly successful film? Take a listen. You did such an amazing, amazing job, and one of the great things with this film is that you have differentiated it from... Olivier's original of The Untouchables. And I'm curious, how, what was your thought process for your approach, tonally and visually, to honor Philippe's story, but also to make this movie yours? Well, that, that was the thing, in the sense, when, I first, when they first offered it to me, I didn't want to do it, because I thought, why, why remake this you know, this international hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, what, 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 what good can come from that? And, um, but as I started thinking about the story more, and actually I passed on it at first, and then they offered it to me again about a year later, and um, the script had changed a little bit, and also sort of the political climate in the country had changed, or at least for me had come to a place where I was like, wow, you know, this story really speaks indirectly to what's going on and, and actually in a, and speaks in the sense of a, you think like with the sort of racial and cultural divide, how do we bridge those divides? How do we ever find common ground with each other and get over this? And I, and I thought that the movie and the script actually that I was reading at the time was, did that and or, or spoke to that in the way that it, it just offered this very small picture of these two men from, you know, very different backgrounds and obviously different race and difference in wealth and difference in ability, finding common ground and finding a common humanity and 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 doing it through small acts of kindness and respect. Mm-hmm. So that hit me and I was like, oh, at that point I was like, this movie needs to be made. And then... I was like, okay, but how do I do it differently? And I felt like I figured that out. I felt like I was actually the person to do it. 
So at that point, I didn't care about the original anymore. Mm-hmm. I felt like this movie needed to be made, and I knew how to do it. Well, one of the ways that Neil figured out how to do it and make this his own and tell the story, so it was not a cookie cutter of the Intouchables, uh, was to bring on his cinematographer, Stuart Dryberg. Stuart has done, an, he has a vast amount of work that you all rec- will know, Painted Veil, Bridget Jones among them, at two opposite ends of the spectrum. Here, something that is so exquisite with what Stuart and Neil did together. The cinematography is actually a layer of storytelling here, uh, with the visual design created with the lighting and lensing. The camera angles are varied, and one of the key things, and you're going to hear Neil talk about this also, is that because Brian Cranston is in an upright um, chair designed for quadriplegics, Kevin's, uh, Kevin Hart has a, has a shorter stature. So uh, for framing purposes in the film, they're essentially, they become eye level almost. So that we see these men, they're on equal footing, despite the differences that you just heard Neil talk about with their economic, I can't talk today. It's the rain. Uh, despite their economic status differences, their race differences, their personalities, they are essentially on a level playing field. And that's something that's really wonderful about this film because nobody is ever diminished, nobody is ever downtrodden, nobody is ever pitied. Uh, everything is very upbeat, and that includes the lighting that Stewart has designed. Um, differentiating the world of Kevin Hart's Dell from Cranston's Philip, Philip's penthouse, it's very high ceilings, the sky, the metaphor, the sky is the limit, white walls, bright white lighting, as opposed to the grungier, leaky ceilings, kind of putrid kind of lighting and look of Dell's apartment. Um, So a lot of, a lot of, Instead of exposition um, via dialogue to tell and show the differences between these men, we see them, so we really focus on the commonality between them. And it's, it's an amazing job that's done by Stuart and Neil. So take a listen to what Neil had to say about creating this visual tone with Stu Dryberg. Well, one of the, your your key components that helped you do that is your cinematographer is working with Stuart. I mean, what the two of you have done visually, it is its own layer of storytelling here, Neil. Your visuals are incredible. I mean, I love the fact that that Stuart went with the with the Hawk V lights, the anamorphics. I love the locations that you picked, especially all the Philadelphia locations, since like Kevin, I'm from Philly. But what you also did that I found so fascinating is you leveled the playing field because of Kevin's shorter stature and putting Brian in a chair, the tilted quadriplegic chair, they're essentially eye level for the bulk of the film. And you show, and it's man, it's, they're equal men. And then it lets the rest of the story just play out as to 
everything around them doesn't matter because at the at the base of it, they're the same guys. Yes, well, I think that that's right. And, and what was important to me was that they're both, you know, as I started looking at it and figuring out, okay, what is the visual metaphor here? What's the signature? What's their journey? And, and I wanted to differentiate it from, from the original. The original has this kind of handheld immediacy that's beautifully done. Um, and, but I wanted something more from this. And I wanted to kind of sort of drill down on the, on the visuals and the, and the visual metaphors. And in a way, both men are in prison. Mm-hmm. Both, you know, they're both locked in, in their, in their, in their particular ways. They're both trapped. Um, and so then it was just very obvious in a way. It sounds very obvious, but sometimes you need to kind of come upon these things and find the, you know, the, their journey obviously is from prison to freedom. And so what are the, what are the visual signatures, um, and, you know, the, and visual motifs um, for all that. And obviously, you know, at the end, the paragliding obviously has, a, has that kind of lightness and openness and, um, and, and the sense of freedom. And so then in the beginning, even though Philip lives in this, you know, big, uh, huge apartment, it's like how do we shoot it to sort of reinforce that sense of, of being locked in. And if you, you know, at the beginning of the movie, you know, all the curtains are closed and there mm-hmm. isn't a sense of light. There's a sense of kind of heaviness. Um, and obviously the same with, with Kevin's world in the beginning. And so, um, you know, so I wanted an immediacy and I wanted it to feel real. And, um, but I wanted that in a very different sort of more expressive um, way. I didn't merely want to capture what was happening, but to get in there and kind of visually support it in a more expressive, in, yeah, more expressive way. And that's exactly what he did. And hand in hand with that is the work of production designer Mark Friedberg, who is the one who developed the whites, worked with Neil to develop this white palette, this white canvas. So take a listen to what Neil has to say about Mark's work. And of course, I love that the fact that you, your production designer, uh, Mark Friedberg, you went with the extreme white, white in Phillips penthouse because it plays like his life. Life is a canvas, whatever you're going to paint on it. And as we move through the film, you're always adding little things such as artwork or something. And the canvas is getting more rich. I love that metaphor and I loved watching that because both men essentially benefited from that white canvas. Yeah, I think that that's right. And, and, you know, Philip's world is so different from Dell's. You know, Dell is from the projects in in the Bronx and there were the Webster houses where we shot that. And obviously there's a complete difference in those, you know, those, those two worlds. Yet, as I said before, in either world, both men are 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 trapped. So for me, it was like I wanted it to be located. I wanted the movie and the visuals to be located very much in each character's point of view. Um, and you know, and then and then as the as the movie opens up, I was kind of looking for sort of a more joyous kind of energetic tone and style to it. Really. A, 
you know, some kind of exuberance or a dynamism as they begin to connect and as they begin to find, you know, a way of, of you know, just getting a, a, a glimpse of, of, of freedom and of, and of life and the potential for life for, for both of them. You know, one aspect of the film, and this this is always um, an issue throughout the history of film, when, and especially more so in the past 10, 15 years, and, and in today's climate, um, is who do you hire, who do you cast, and what do you do with authenticity when you are dealing with a disabled individual? Uh, do you go out and do you cast, find a quadriplegic and cast them in the role? Or do you hire an actor like Brian Cranston? Do you get the best person for the role? If you get an actor, you then, I think you have a great a greater responsibility to get it right. Um, how many acting quadriplegics are out there, I honestly do not know. Uh, I do know, being familiar with many quads um, and several organizations that work with them, among them Ralph's Riders, um, some of the most capable person, and I think I said this last week, disabled doesn't even come into your thought process if you meet these people and know them. They're more able than I am uh, in many respects. But it's always a tricky thing when you're casting, when you're looking at a movie as to which way you go but when you go the route of hiring an actor to portray uh, a disabled individual especially a quadriplegic you owe you owe the person whose story you're telling you owe the community you owe the audience authenticity and that's something that was very important to Neil and I talked to him about that how important and how challenging was it for you with the authenticity of working with somebody who is a quadriplegic and their daily routine and their way of life. Because we see this in other films over the decades and sometimes people don't pay too much attention. Your attention to detail dealing with Philip's quadriplegia and then the assistance with the authenticity and honesty of what you put on screen for that. Well, I think it, for us it was quite important to get it right. And I think that for two reasons. One, as I said in the beginning, even though the movie is has humor in it, we wanted it to be real. We wanted it to feel, we wanted it to resonate um, in the real world. And so it was important that it had, overall, it had an honesty, however they were characterized. And then in particularly, we wanted to be sensitive to how a person with disability was characterized and shown. And so we did an enormous amount of research. We worked with um, uh, two different uh, institutions that work with people with disabilities, one the Kessler Institute, which is in New Jersey, and the other the McGee Institute in, in Philadelphia, and with incredible people there um, who are caregivers and, and uh and then also met with a number of people with, with disabilities, similar disabilities, um, you know, to get it right, to get it right for Brian, but also to get it right for Golshifta, who plays the, you know, his, his uh, you know, uh, the physical therapist that comes in, mm -hmm. and, and then ultimately for Kevin, that he, you know, begins to learn and then becomes quite adept at 
uh, taking care of of, of Philip. Um, so um, that was hugely important to us, and we, we had you know two consultants on the on on stage with us at all the time. And then Brian, for his part, enormous amount of research, and you know just worked hard to get it right to be to be true um, to these people and um, you know and and uh, you know and, and their lives. Yeah, I I personally I'm very curious uh, to hear from some of my friends in the in the community as to their thoughts on how well uh, Neil and company did with the portrayals uh, and the authenticity factor in The Upside. You know, something that's definitely upbeat throughout the film is Rob Simonson's score. And not just Rob Simonson's score, but the needle drops in The Upside are amazing. From opera to Aretha, uh, it's... There is nothing downbeat about the musical presence in The Upside. So naturally, I had to ask Neil about Rob Simonson and the score. You know, I would be remiss not to ask you about Rob Simonson and the score. Um, once again, you know, we have we have these two two men, each prisoners in their own way. One, most people will look and go, oh, my God, and feel pity or or heartbreak but as you do with your visual tone particularly in Phillips uh, penthouse you do with the music and you really nothing ever gets maudlin or downbeat so I'm curious what your conversations were like with Rob in coming up with a score well I think that's right what you said we didn't want it to be downbeat we actually wanted a, a sense of, of of life to it we want it to be um, uh, you know, really what I told Rob was because you could go to something that was had a bleakness to it or something because both of them are that. But we wanted the sense, what, what, what I'm often looking for and, and in the movies that I do, but, but in particularly in this case, was that the music had a buoyancy to it. Even if it was dealing with something that um, was darker or sadder, that it's still, that it didn't get mired in it somehow, that it still had this sense of life and even just a shred of possibility in it. And again, if they say, sort of using this term, that it had a, you know, a buoyancy to it. And he, he succeeded enormously. I'm really happy with it. And any of you that have seen the film, I think you'll agree with the buoyancy and the upbeat quality of the music in The Upside. And if you haven't seen the film yet, it really is. It's an added it's an added perk in this particular film to hear the score and the actual tracks that are running through it. But at the end of the day, you know, you all you may not know Neil Berger's name, but you know his films, films like The Illusionist. Limitless, Divergent, and these are all very diverse films. Uh, big budget, small budget, uh, and then he's got so many more all in between. But I was curious, you know, what does he take away from a film like this? It's a smaller budget film. It's a different genre, another, yet another genre that he jumps into. Um, so what's his takeaway as a director that 
he can take forward and his final thoughts on the upside. I'm curious because you've done such huge films. You've done Divergent, Limitless, a smaller film, but huge uh, vision with that film. And here you are now with The Upside. It's a small film, but it's a very powerful film. So I'm curious, as you as you move through these different genres and, di- and different stories that you tell and different price points, shall we say, you know, what did you take away? What did you learn about yourself in making The Upside? Learn about yourself as a director that you can now take forward into your next projects. Well, I do learn from, from each of them. And to me, I don't feel the movie is small. I feel like it's very cinematic. Mm-hmm. What I'm always looking for is kind of like, how can I make it cinematic? And how can I make it um, uh, so that you want to go out to the movies to see this? And I think that that's um, something that's very important to me, even though there's incredibly great work being done on television. Obviously, you can watch any movie on television. It's like there's something very important to me about the cinematic experience of going to the theater mm-hmm. to see it. And it's like, okay, why, though? Why do you need to see it? And it's obviously not a superhero movie, and it's not a big spectacle. But what I try to get into this movie, and I think actually why it's actually kind of wonderful to see this movie in the, in the theater, is because there is this sort of group... Um, emotion that begins to happen and it's really fun to see the movie in the theater because if people laugh, I mean there's enormous amount of laughter in the movie, even though the movie is technically a drama that has comedic elements, not just a straight you know, it's not a broad Kevin Hart comedy, but it is as funny as any of those movies even though there's also quite a bit of heart to it, and pardon the pun there's quite a bit of, you know, moving in a lot of ways. You really laugh and you cry. Um, and what was interesting to me was to discover that in a movie that was more, you know, that takes place in, you know, this apartment. But to make it bigger and to make those emotions be able to resonate, you know, in that theater, in that shared experience. And so to me, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a big movie in that way. It's a movie that sort of demands that you actually see it in the theater. And so it was interesting to try to figure out how to do that because it was important to me that people did see it in the theater. And I think it's, you know, it's a really great movie to see in the theater because it's this great shared experience. And I can't agree with Neil Moore. It truly is. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. See it, see it. It is in theaters now, the upside. And also... Those of you watching our Facebook live stream on AdrenalineRadio.com, um, there is also a companion book that has come out for The Upside. So, and I started reading it. I've got about uh, another 20 pages to go. Um, it is fun. There are funny moments. It is, it's really a wonderful, wonderful companion piece to the film. So, you know, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and in your brick-and-mortar stores. So, you know, check that out. Um, also, I would be remiss not to mention my, my favorite movie of 2018, Bohemian Rhapsody, is back in theaters with a sing-along version, no less. Um, thank you, Fox. I ask for that. Thank you, Sarah Hall. Um, I wanted that the minute I saw the film, and now we have it. And back in theaters, 
and it came in number 11 on the box office this weekend, pulling in another $3.2 million. So the public loves Bohemian Rhapsody. So let's see what happens come... uh, And the Guilds are loving Bohemian Rhapsody as well. Uh, Guild Award nominations have been coming out over the past week, and we're seeing a lot of love for Bohemian Rhapsody, a lot of love for Mary Poppins Returns, which it looks like we're going to get to later in the show because I'm very excited. The fabulous Jeff Fry is back with us. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I'm fine. I told you in December I'd bring you back before your January festival. Yes, you did, and I'm happy to be back. I uh, I really appreciate the opportunity here. Well, and congratulations, because you also just, it was just announced you're in the Irvine Film Festival in March. That's correct, yes. Uh, It takes place March 22nd to 28th, and uh, I don't know yet what the dates of that one is, but um, we are, we, we have been selected for it, so it's great. Oh, I think, and this weekend is Borrego Film Festival. You know, to bring That's correct. to bring our, our old listeners and our new listeners up to date, give us a synopsis of what Krieg is. Um, Krieg, well, I guess I should really start with uh, what we were trying to do with Krieg. It, uh, it was a uh, an ambitious World War II short film, a little featurette that lasts about 40 minutes that we were um, really trying to create an opportunity for some very talented you know, associates, filmmakers to uh, to show those talents in something in a project that I think would display it a bit more than the projects that they've been able to work on. Um, and through that, we developed this uh, uh, project about serving others, and the film itself became a theme of serving others. And it really follows uh, uh, an SS officer and his journey as he. Uh, uh, he, he experiences this uh, uh, killing, if you will, at the beginning of the film, and his and he didn't do anything to stop it. So his basically he's um, suffering remorse for that, and he wants to go find a transmitter that they've been looking for. That by finding it, it will you know, cease the killings that are happening at the camp with their French um, partisan prisoners uh, that they've been interrogating. And while he's out there, he finds a uh, a downed B-17, and he rescues a American airman who's wounded, and he actually conveys them to the French resistance. Uh, it's kind of like his redemption story. Yeah, and this is one of the things that you know I truly love about Krieg is how you take a look at the human condition. You take a look at the humanity within each of us, uh, the crisis of conscience, and when th- the things that you really have to man up, the things that define you as a person, which wh- which act do you do? Do you have an act of compassion? Do you kill to just kill? Um, you know, you really, really give us a lot to think about and a lot that we see unfold on screen. And so much of that is conveyed through your incredible camera work. You hold shots. You, you know, forget about the fact that we have different languages being spoken or anything. Um, and we've got French and German subtitles happening. You hold shots. You hold the emotional beat to give us time 
to process, much as the characters are processing. And I find that particularly effective and affecting. You know, how difficult... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, one of the things that uh, I really wanted to do with this piece was to to create a film that didn't require dialogue. Um, and so that was the goal. And by putting it into a foreign language, really, if, if you just turn off the subtitles and listen to it, um, the film really speaks without having to know the languages. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I wanted to try and achieve. I think, it, I think it was successful in doing that. I think everybody gets that message. There's, there's passages where there's just absolutely no dialogue in it at all. Um, and, uh, and hopefully, hopefully, um, uh, people pick up on it like you, that, uh, you know, it gives you time to study, study it just through the eyes. The other thing that I was actually trying to do, um, you'll notice in the film that, uh, I don't use a lot of people's faces. Mm-mm. I use a lot of body language. I was trying to do an experiment with body language because I believe that what people are doing, um, with their, with their hands and their postures translates so much information to the audience that you don't even need to see their faces. And I, I did that in several places where you literally just don't see their faces. You just see them, or you'll see them from the side. Um, but you get the idea of exactly what it is that they're trying to um, uh, convey, or, you know, yeah, and, uh, and their emotions that they're feeling. And some, a lot of it even comes from, I, I noticed, with some of the SS officers, um, how they're standing, their posture. It, do, does the shoulders stoop down at any moment uh, when they're being chastised or reprimanded by the superior officer? Um, are heads hanging down? Do they not want their eyes seen? There, you have lots of little moments like that in here that are quite telling in helping to define who these people are. And little things like that always fascinate me in, you know, within a film. And here we really get to see that and appreciate it in large part because of what you were just describing, what you, what your intent was and what you were trying to do. Um, you know, at the, bo- at the end of the day, the big thing you do is you blur the vision of war for us. You redefine what the battlefield is. The battlefield is not on the battlefield. The battlefield is in the hearts of men. And, you know, that comes through so strongly, Jeff, that it really stays with you after the film ends. No, thank you. Um, that, that was what we were trying to achieve. We, uh, uh, I, I have to give so much credit to my actors in this. I mean, you know, I, I can look at, I look at things and I can see small nuances and things that I want to change as, as a director. But, um, uh, a huge part of this. I could just talk to them about what I wanted from the character and turn them loose. And they would give me back everything that just filled my heart with what I was looking for. They were a tremendous group of actors. I just, I can't speak enough for them. Uh, well, your two real standouts yeah. are Heiko Ober, uh, Obermuller and Scott Bailey. The two of them, yes. are, they are amazing amazing. I don't know where they've both been hiding, but you found them. Uh, and I hope they don't disappear again, because they really, you cannot take your eyes off them. You really can't. Yeah, they were quite a pair. Um, 
we uh, when I did the auditions for them, um, I don't know. I don't think I discussed this with you. Um, uh, Heiko wasn't really, you know. I had a I had a preconception of what I what I wanted as far as uh, an actor. You know, I had kind of pictured what I needed, and um, it was amazing the revelation that occurred to me when I met Heiko because I, I he wasn't at all what I was thinking of for the part. And, but when I listened to his voice, um, that lyrical, poetic German mm-hmm. that he has, I was, I was blown away. And not only that, but he came into the audition. And the night before, he, he called me up and asked me for some sides, so I gave him three scenes. He came in, and he was off page. He Overnight? knew all three scenes by heart. And it was it was amazing the performance he came in and gave, and I just I was literally I was just blown away, and uh, we became good friends, and uh, um, and then of course uh, Scott he's German as well, or he, he's not really German, he was raised in Germany, mm-hmm. and uh, so he knows the German language too. Uh, he came in, he auditioned for the same part that Heiko did, but Scott is so much the the American. Mm-hmm. Um, Classic American, you know, the JFK, the Robert F. Kennedy, he, he just, you know, that just oozes out of his <laughs> pores when yeah. you look at him on the screen. Yeah, and he, and he was the right size, and Heiko was able to carry him, you know, and it, it worked out just beautifully. Well, you know, and that's not, it's like, okay, you've got people carrying people. Um, there's so much authenticity in this, in Krieg, and... You know, a lot of right down to your uniforms, the vintage vehicles, aircraft, and of course, that incredible French underground transmitter. You know, I am just obsessed about the transmitter. Um, <laughs> you know, the, all of these items are just uh, talk about your scavenging to find and create um, over the years to put this together because. All of these elements, this also fuels that idea of little dialogue um, because we're seeing so much and absorbing it through our visual sense perception. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that about the, uh, the transmitter. Um, that's actually a transmitter out of B-17. Uh, it's a liaison set. Um, they used the same uh, similar transmitters on the ground that they used in the airplanes. And there were these huge, huge transmitters and, and tuning units that plugged into them. And they just, um, they were very complex at the time. And uh, that is actually the second one that I had. I had one. And uh, the first time we started to shoot that scene, or those two scenes, we shot one scene. And we were going to come back the next day and shoot the other. And that transmitter actually got stolen, along with all the radios. And uh, Are you it was, serious? It was. It was. I was serious, and it was. Took me two years to scavenge, or if you will, scavenge up enough uh, uh, another another transmitter set. Um, but all the radios were taken, and uh, uh, so we actually approached that scene a couple years later after I, I got uh, uh, another set. And uh, of course, I bought them on eBay, like bought some of the uniforms and stuff, you know. And uh, and then we set it so that all of it would work. It doesn't have to function as a radio, but it does have to light up and do yeah. the things it did. So, so we got it all to work, and uh, um, but it delayed the film quite a bit. Well, I, you know, and you and you brought up eBay again, which just blew my mind when we spoke in December. The fact that you actually went sourcing stuff on eBay, 
Um, I don't often hear of filmmakers doing that. And I just, uh, that just, and for what you found on eBay, that is the other thing that I think is so fascinating. It's amazing what's out there. You know, like the the Mae West vest that the the American crew was wearing in the the Mm -hmm. B-17, those those are authentic. The uniforms that they had, um, uh, the, the... the over, if you will, there's a there's underwear that they wear, and then there's a uniform, and then there's a heated flight suit that goes over that, and then there's pants and a jacket that goes over that. All that stuff, full uniforms like that, uh, were all that was available, and uh, you just had to, to bid on it or buy it, you know, at a price. Um, and usually, I could find it low enough or negotiate for it, and uh, um, and I did that with a lot of stuff. There were some things that I couldn't actually get on eBay or that I couldn't find at all. For example, the transmitter, um, the tuning unit, that uh, it's a receiver. It's a um, uh, the unit that Heiko is using at the beginning of the film. It's got uh, it's a, what we call a directional finder. It's a German radio, and it has a, a huge antenna, four-part antenna on the top of mm-hmm. it. Uh, with a little base, and it sits on top of another radio. There's like only three of those around in the world that people have, and I managed to get my hands on uh, pictures of them, and I I built that one. Uh, That one's basically a prop. That's one of the few things that's not real in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did have something to go by. So, you know, they tried to go, I guess the quest for authenticity drove me to making things if I couldn't find them, so... Well, it certainly shows in the end result. And, of course, you know, one of the adorable things that you have in the film is a wooden marionette, and you carved that. And I love that little marionette. Jack Nudo, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're just a man of so many talents. You're building radio transceivers, and you're, bu- and you're carving marionettes. Is there anything you cannot do? Um, um, make money? <laughs> <laughs> Spend a lot. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of spending, though, it's like all of these things that you bought on eBay, did you turn around and sell them back on eBay after you finished shooting? Uh, some of them. I still have uh, I still have a good portion because I, I, I don't know really if I'm finished with this project. I've been looking for um, funding for the feature film that, I want to see that is behind this project. Yeah, I want to see this as a feature. I think it would be spectacular. Uh, there are things that are in the feature film that I find far more intriguing than what I was able to put into the short. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, the the relationships between the people, how they came about, and how they're how they're defined by what they do. Um, mm-hmm. There's just I, I really, I really love the script. I'm still looking at that, so I'm hanging on to some things. I still hang on the uniforms. I still have the radios, um, because I don't, you know. But you know, if I do get funding for that, uh, yeah, I, I all, I'll have the money back to go out and buy other things that I need. You know, so uh, it, it's not like I really have to hang on to it. But I, I'm doing it just uh, for a while anyway, until I see whether or not I can, I can flip this around into a feature. I mean, because as you talk about that, immediately my mind started going to, I would love to know, you know, why did the character of Collins and why did the character of Winter, why did they, well, Winter kind of had no choice. Uh, in Germany, you kind of had no choice uh, at all. But what were their motivations right. to 
joining the military, going to war? Um, how did they end up stationed or, or where they were? What was Collins actually doing in that in that area? Um, you know, questions like that. Um, you know, it's kind of like expanded serious Hogan's heroes almost. Uh, <laughs> which I yeah, admit, um, I admit, exactly. I watch it every night of the week, <laughs> full hour. Do you? I admit. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I love that show. It was great. Um, that's exactly what the uh, the feature does. It uh, uh, the, or the screenplay does. Um, it goes back and starts at the beginning with these guys, where they come from, what what molds them into the people they are by the time they come to this, which is really the ending of, of the feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the short is really the end of the film. Um, and uh, it does spend some time, uh, interesting that you mentioned a prison camp, it does spend some time at uh, um, Dachau, um, uh, because that's a, that was the training center for the SS uh, in, in the you know the original days. Um, uh, and so that's where Heiko actually you know, in, in the movie Winter, it goes to train and mm-hmm. uh, and then works from there. And he, he keeps coming back to it uh, in the, in the uh, feature uh, with a connection with somebody that uh, is actually in the prison camp at, uh, mm. at, at uh, Dachau. So it's, um, uh, it's, uh, it's very layered, um, but it's uh, very, it's also very, very straightforward. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just looking at these different lives and what motivated everybody to be the way they are. You know, what kind of research did you do into history in order to craft this, to craft the script? And obviously you did a lot of visual research for photos and for uh, for the costumes, for the vehicles, for the radios. But what kind, what was the research process like into the, uh, this, this history? spent probably... I would say a couple of years before I even began this project, um, once I decided what it was I wanted to do, uh, and I spent a couple of years just watching or looking at um, uh, detailed information on Russian uh, Russian and German and American troop movements in Europe, mm-hmm. and uh, specifically the German troop movements. Uh, the, the outfit that uh, Winter is with is really a 6th Bergsteiger unit, um, and it it had gone to France, uh, or it was piecemealed out of uh, a group that went to France during the, the first conquest there. And then it came back to Dachau, went up to um, the Russian front, and then they ended up up in Finland, and then they retreated out of Finland and came back down into France. And that's where we're taking place with this story. But the story with Winter in the future actually goes to all those places. So we see how each one of those fields... Uh, uh, if you will, uh, fronts uh, affected him, and what he did at each one of them to win the awards that he he wears and to mold him in the type of person that he is. So, mm. uh, but I did spend I spent uh, at least two solid years just studying before I did this thing. And in that same period of time, I was trying to find uh, the B a B twenty four. The the plane that I wanted to use was a B twenty four, and uh, there's like three of them that are still flying. And I had contracted with an outfit to actually use one of them. And um, about three weeks before we started to shoot the first, what I wanted to do the first time, um, they pulled out. They got cold feet and uh, 
said that they'd do it the next year. So that postponed us another year. I did some more studying, and then the next year came around, and they pulled out altogether and uh, left me there. Oh, and no. so I changed the plane to a B-17 because there's like 35 of them in the public domain. Okay, well, and, better odds. Yeah, and we had a better shot at it. Yeah, we had better odds, and it took me about six months, but I found the plane and built a relationship with the people. They allowed me to do that. So there was plenty of prep time, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How long was it once and, you uh, actually got to start to shoot? You know, Excuse me? Once you actually got around to shooting, how long did it take uh, to shoot? Uh, from uh, from the first time we rolled cameras to um, our first screening was eight years. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and so figures the two years prior to that, yeah, research and uh, trying to gear up and actually shoot a different plane. Um and of course, like I said, there was some thefts, and uh, some, so we had some major setbacks on that. And uh, um, amazing. But you know, the thing about it is, when you're an independent filmmaker, time is actually your friend. Mm-hmm. It gives you it gives you a chance to look at what it is that you're doing and and make changes, make adjustments, uh, uh, stir into those moments that that your actors are giving you and find the heart of that and uh, and capitalize on it you know i mean there's um, i mean things things when you're when you're making independent films your assets are really your passion your skill sets your relationships your resourcefulness and creativity and time mm-hmm. you know i mean in the process of scoring this film and doing the uh, uh computer graphics after everything was finished, the blue screens and green screens and stuff like that. Um, that process was about two years. I, I was um, trying to find the right music for it, and uh, Sony, I was trying to work with Sony, and they, they really kind of kept delaying me. I think there was a uh, uh, kind of a uh, lawsuit or a claim against one of the songs I wanted to use, and it took almost a year and a half for them to clear that up. Um, and then finally, when they came around to offering it to me, it, 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 was, it was just too expensive. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I chose to go a different route with it. And the route that I went with it, I think, was much better than my original thought. So the time delay itself actually made the film better. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, at the end of the day, now that you are out on the Fest circuit and we still may see a feature come from this, Outside of having extreme patience, what would you say is the greatest thing you've learned to come from the process thus thus far? Well, one of the things I actually learned in this film was perseverance. Um, I mean, anywhere along the line in the ten years that uh, since you know we began it, um, I could have stopped, um, but I I felt compelled. I was driven by the music that uh, Douglas Edward, the composer, had done for me, uh, mm-hmm. what we call Winter's Theme, which is that little two-minute piece over the credits at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, I mean, I, I for, the, for the last eight years or so, I, I maybe sleep three hours a night, four hours a night, and I'd be up, and I would listen to that music, and the music just kept compelling me to finish the film. Um, you know, and I didn't want to disappoint such fine actors and crew and the people that were out there helping me and the sponsors. Um, so 
So perseverance is, uh, I think, a quality that came about of that. But if I were to say um, the the biggest thing that I've, I've learned about it, um, people people mock at the idea of passion when you say that uh, if you have passion, the money will follow. Um, truth is, it's not really money that you need, um, but true passion opens doors, opens windows, it helps you build relationships, and it, and and it's from that that you get other people's passion involved in your project. And uh, um, if you approach it with a kind of love and respect uh, you know, for others and for the material and for what everybody's bringing to it. I mean, in, in my case here, I wore maybe five different hats making this mm-hmm. film. But regardless of my skill sets, I needed the skills of other people. And, um, and the best way to do that is to build relationships with those people. And you, you have to earn their faith in you. And you do that by um, serving others, by putting, you know, helping them and, and putting your faith in them. And uh, I think that the, the relationships are probably the, uh, the biggest things that come out of films. Well, I am so thankful for all of your efforts in bringing Krieg to life and I really want to see the feature film come to fruition. Um, out of all the shorts that I see that there is a glimmer that maybe there will be a feature, I would have to say this is probably the one at the top of my list in all these years that I want to see a feature film out of. Um, it's, it's, you've done an incredible job with this. And, you know, I can't wait for more people to see the film on the Fest circuit. The thing that, that truly makes filmmaking worthwhile are when you have the privilege of touching people's hearts. Um, and people like yourselves, when you see the film and, and I hear you understand it and you, you, um, you're touched by it. And, you know, when that happens, you know, it doesn't have to be very many people, you know, mm-hmm. if you can reach a handful of people and, and possibly change lives or just touch your hearts. It's, uh, it, makes, it makes the years that you put into a project worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think that, I think that regardless of where it goes, it has already um, done what I wanted it to do. It's already touched lives. It's already molded the people. Um, uh, specifically, our, our cast and crew to begin with. I mean, these guys were out there for it's the same people over eight years, you know, or six years of shooting. We shot thirty days over the course of six years, really. And the uh, the cast and crew bonded you know, like a, a band of brothers, like an army of soldiers. And they kept coming back. You know, every two years, we'd go back out there and we'd shoot more of it. And the same people, yeah, I'm there. All I had to do was give them a phone call. Yes, I'm there. I, I want to do this. You know, and, and they come out. It was like a big reunion. You know, it was just, and uh, it just affected so many lives. And all these people that we were working with were all friends and now. And they've, they've all gone off and worked on other projects together. And they, the goal was to serve other people. And I think the film has done that. So hopefully it will do that to the to the audience as well. Well, and of course, anybody 
in the area of Borrego Film Fest. They can see Krieg on the 19th. Irvine Film Fest is going to be there sometime in March between the 22nd and 28th. You keep the Facebook page very well updated for Krieg the movie. And you've got the website, www.krieg-the-movie.com. Uh, Every event will be in is actually posted on there. Um, you just click on the icon, and it will take you to uh, the website about the film festivals or you know, tickets or whatever, information about it. Uh, but, yes, uh, we, we keep that updated for everything. And there are a couple of festivals. Um, I, I can't say yet what they are, but uh, they're due to come up in February. The Ooh. announcements, are the, uh, the uh, uh, notifications haven't come about yet. They're due this month. Mm-hmm. Um, but there may be a couple more in February. And, and uh, you know, if people just check out the website and go to the events page and look at the latest events, they'll see uh, uh, anything that comes up between um, now and uh, the Irvine Festival. Well, and you know that anything I see that comes up, I'm going to have to tell all the listeners about it so that as many people as possible can go see this film. Um, it is it is definitely a must-see for so many reasons, Jeff. Um, I, can't, I can't thank you again for coming on the show again to talk more about Krieg. Uh, I really... Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I enjoy the conversation here with you. I really appreciate it because I was just so upset because we didn't have that much time in December and I wanted to make sure we had even more time to go deeper into the film. Um, Jeff, thank you so, so much. And I know you will be back on the show again. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like that. I I have no doubt. Jeff Fry, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Debbie. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Jeff Fry, Krieg, the movie. Well, now we have a dilemma. Um, we don't have enough time to really get into Sandy Powell uh, to talk about and my interview exclusive with Sandy and production designer John Mary uh, to talk about Mary Poppins. Oh, my God. Pam, what do we do? How about if we do a... Why don't we do one of our... A PSA. Do we have one to bring up? And then come back and do a sign-off? Okay, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come right back. A powerful threat calls for a greater response. Some battles must be faced together, and you can be part of this battle, too. Visit StandUpToCancer.org to learn more. Together, we can save lives. Okay, so you pick the shortest one we got, right? She's in there laughing at us, laughing at us. Well, it is. We're 20 seconds away from all the time that we have today. Again, thank you to Jeff Fry. Uh, If you're anywhere near the Borrego Film Festival uh, this coming weekend, check out Krieg, the film. Um, follow up on that. The Upside, in theaters now, see it, Bohemian Rhapsody. Go to the sing-along because it's really, really, really fun. And who doesn't know the words to Queen songs? Uh, And, okay, you're just going to have to go to BehindTheLensOnline.net for Sandy Powell and 
and John uh, Murray uh, to hear their interview. I'm going to actually put the audio up on there because hearing the two of them, I did a two-on-one with them, uh, and they're as interested in what the other one did as I am with both of them. So to hear the exchanges of what they're asking each other about what they were doing within Mary Poppins Returns, um, that is even more fascinating, I think. So you will be able to find that on BehindTheLensOnline.net along with plenty of other stuff. And until next week, this is Debbie Elias for Behind the Lens. (laughs) 